The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, guys, let's get started. So we're going to be talking about uh, race and racial reconciliation, what it looks like in the in the church, but more importantly, like how this should start, what it should look like our, in our communities and the relationships that we build. And uh, back in, so back in April, uh, Brody and I went to uh, Togo. So if you're, if you're looking at a picture of the map of, of Africa, in West Africa, where it kind of dips under and, and goes back into the horn, there's two little countries between Ghana and Nigeria, and they're called Togo and Benin. So we went and visited those two countries. And so about 3 million people were exported out of those two countries into the slave trade that went to Brazil and Haiti uh, and then the continental United States to work the sugar plantations. So the remnants of the slave trade are still there. The Portuguese slave uh, trade forts are there. Um, Mass graves are all over the place. I mean, it is... Uh, the wells that they used to pass them by before they put them on the ships. I mean, the history of, of slave trade is still very obvious and, and very ingrained into the, the Togolese culture and the, and the culture in Benin. But also, I mean, the primary religion in those countries is, is voodoo. And I think our, our picture of voodoo is kind of like we think, oh, you know, New Orleans, this black magic kind of stuff, you know, dolls and pins and needles guys I, I can tell you that you know for somebody who spent years in Iraq and Afghanistan in very dark oppressed places that the countries of Togo and Benin were spiritually the darkest places I've been in the world and I think a lot of that is part of what happened during the slave trade there where you have so many people that are, were being brought together into these ports and they're pagan religions and their idolatry and the the demons that they interacted with they came together and they would talk about the demons that they knew and the demons that this other culture knew and they traded practices and helped each other gain access to these other spiritual powers and, and through that now togo and benin are the greatest exports for voodoo in the world i mean people come from all over to go to these places to learn how to practice it and then witch doctors leave these countries to go teach it in Haiti, in Brazil, and in the United States. And the, and the power that you see, like the spiritual darkness that you see manifested there, I mean, it is absolutely connected to, to the darkness that was ingrained in, in the transatlantic slave trade. So I remember we went to, Brody and I went to one particular place, and it was called uh, the Well of Purification. So what happened is after about 13 days of trading and suffering and dying, that the, the slaves endured, that they would take this, you know, mile or two walk down this straight path, straight dirt road, all the way to the coast. And along the way, there was this well, and it was called the Well of Purification. And what they would do is they would march them around this well seven times, and then they would take water out of the well and then baptize them with that well water and then put them on their ships. 
So to see how see how Satan takes things that rep- is represented in the gospel and things that we see as good, and he twists them for darkness. This isn't like the baptism we think of, and the, what it is is this n- number seven, right? This number of completion. They go around the well seven times, and then when they're baptized with this well water, what it's doing is it's taking their soul from them. They're washing them and ridding them of their soul so they can leave the country. And they said, you know, whenever you go and you serve, you'll forget who you are and you'll lose your identity and you'll just go and serve as slaves, soulless slaves. But the good part is, is that we've baptized your your soul out of you, so it'll remain in Africa. It'll remain in your country. So when you die, your soul will still be here. Like, understand how dark that is. Like, they would literally try to strip them of their soul before they were sent into slavery so they would just go as shells of human beings so we see this come into our society we see it introduced in the late 1600s in the united states but what i want to point out through this this talk is that we as the church we as the body of christ have not done a good job we have not always been faithful to proclaim the gospel and to protect uh, the people that God entrusts us with, we've done a poor job of standing up for the weak and the oppressed. And we've done it throughout history. So as we as we started thinking about, you know, actually speaking on racism and, and the role of racial reconciliation in the gospel, uh, I started reaching out to friends of mine uh, that had different viewpoints than me and friends of mine that grew up in the church. And I wanted to know what their thoughts were, particularly from a black perspective and not a white perspective. So I called a buddy of mine, Stephen, and I've known Stephen for about 13 years. And I, I said, Stephen, do you have any, man, do you have any thoughts on, you know, being, being a, a black male in a, in a Christian society? And just because I, kn- I knew that he went to church at least. And he said, yeah, I've actually got a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about it. I said, okay. So I waited. He called me back the next day. And the story that Stephen told me over the next half hour or so kind of went something like this. I was, you know, a young black man who went to a predominantly white church. And whenever I was a kid, man, it was awesome. I went to pool parties. I went to dinner parties. I slept over at people's house. We had a good time. Like, I felt like I was part of the family. But once I reached sexual maturity and I was about 14 years old, now every white family that had a white daughter didn't want me coming around their house anymore and then I wasn't invited to parties and I wasn't invited to cookouts and then I was seen more like a menace or something to be skeptical of and then slowly the body of Christ kind of pushed me out so still today a, a man who's in his late 30s early 40s the biggest problem he has in reconciling his Christian faith is that the body of Christ when he needed them the most as a teenage black male in the dc area when he absolutely needed them the most they weren't there for him they treated him like everybody else looked at him he went from being a son and a brother in christ to being a stereotypical black male in dc they just looked at him like everybody else and we have to address why our society why the evangelical church in America is so segregated why are our schools more integrated than we are why are our basketball teams more integrated than we are that has to come from somewhere so I want to talk through kind of how that originated 
So if we go back, originally when the when the first uh, African Americans arrived in this country, they came as an indentured servant, so they were paid. But you can only pay people for so long before you start losing money. So what happened is uh, the the white slave masters and the colonials they got this backing from clergy and from uh, liberal scientists to build this idea that somehow the blacks in America were subhuman and they created these arguments so what they what they did is they ultimately created an idea that African Americans were actually subhuman and the clergy backed it to the point that they said there was no point of evangelizing to blacks in America because they were soulless they were no different from livestock well they only believed that until the the African American population reached about 20% and once they reached about 20% in the United States they go all right, we got a problem now. Now there's more more of them than we had planned on, and we have we're running a risk of a revolt. Like they could rise up. So how do we keep this in control? Well, obviously religion is the best way to control people. So what they did is they started to evangelize to them. So they had this great awakening, and the clergy goes, "You know what? We've thought about it. We've prayed about it. You guys actually do have a soul. You need Jesus. We're going to give you Jesus." Well, they don't give them the full gospel. They give them this partial gospel. So where white evangelicals would be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you, their African-American counterparts are baptism in a much different way where they tried to make it very clear that the freedom they had in Christ did not look anything like the freedom that they should expect here. So it was more like an oath of office where they said, do you, do you swear in front of God in this congregation that the baptism you receive now is for your, the good of your spirit in the next life? and that you understand that it doesn't relieve you from any obligation to your earthly master here. And if they committed to that, then they would allow them to be baptized. So they basically had to swear an oath back to their slave master to receive salvation. So they didn't give them the true gospel. right? They didn't give them freedom in Christ. So much so that as it continued on and they continued to worship together, typically in the church setting, your white evangelicals would be on the first floor, and then in the balconies, that's where they would have the slaves. And then after the first service, the white evangelicals would leave, and then the, the blacks and the African Amer- Americans would stay in the balcony for a second service where the preacher would tell them how they were supposed to respond to the message. So once the whites received the message, they were free to leave, but the, the blacks would have to stay, and they would have to hear, okay, this is what it means to you. It doesn't mean the same to the whites it it means something different to you so you as slaves this is how you're supposed to respond this is how you're supposed to be subservient so that again they don't get the same gospel message even some of the great theologians that we like to quote i mean they were blatantly racist like we we uh, so many times i'm reading through commentaries and i hear about george whitfield well, he himself went into Georgia and said, like, hey, you absolutely got to have slaves because we need we need orphanages built. And we're not going to build it off white labor. We have to build it off, off black labor. And then if you really, this is the darkest thing he said. He said, if you really care about your black brothers and sisters, you would understand that slavery is the best way for them to receive the gospel. That if they are under control of their white masters, that's their best hope to keep them in control of the gospel. And that even if their white master beats them, it'll only heighten their awareness of their need for Jesus. Like this is how dark 
the racism was in the church at that time. As we move into, you know, we're getting closer to America deciding that it's going to declare its independence. They said, well, it's pretty hypocritical of us to say we want freedom from England when we're owning slaves. So they, they try to figure out a way to recolonize African-Americans back to the continent of Africa, and they realize they don't have enough ships to do it. Logistically, it's impossible. So then they start to divide and split over what to do with this, quote, black problem in America where they don't know what they're going to do. So they just kind of continue the way things are, just status quo, and they write the, the Declaration of Independence. The preamble of the Declaration of Independence this is what it says. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal with unalienable rights given to them by their creator with a capital C. We, we said that, but 41 out of the 56 men who signed that legislation were slave owners. Thomas Jefferson himself, after he died and his estate was sold, 130 slaves were sold with his estate. Like the things we said we were about, we weren't about. And then the church began to divide on this issue. So as we move into the Civil War area, now churches are dividing. In 1840, yeah, 1845, 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. Why? Because they split off from the North Church so they could better defend slavery in the South, so they could defend the views of their constituents. Like The Southern Baptist Church was formed to defend slavery. That's it. Even in the Methodist side, the African Methodist Episcopal, the AME Church was formed because blacks and whites were worshiping in the same same congregation, and then in St. Paul's, five five black congregation members went to the altar to pray at the same time as the whites, and the, the deacons of the church ripped them up off their knees and threw them out in the street for integrating their, their time at the altar. And they realized that they really didn't have equality in the church. They didn't have equality in the household of God. So they said, we're going we're gonna to form our own church. Like, we're going to do this on our own where we at least we can worship and feel like human beings. Like, who can blame anyone for that? So in America, the church has always been divided along the lines of race. So we get to 1865, Civil War is over, slavery is abolished. We write the 13th Amendment. Well, the 13th Amendment has this real catchy clause in it where it says that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Okay, so we just wrote into our 13th Amendment that, hey, slavery is abolished except as a punishment for crime. So now every black man and woman walking off of plantations in the South are being rolled up by law enforcement, by civilians, by people for things like loitering and petty theft or jaywalking and anything they can find. So what they're doing is they're putting them in the prisons in this convict leasing program and then selling them back for profit to the same plantations they've been taken off of to help rebuild the infrastructure of the South. So at this time period, nine out of every ten people that are incarcerated at that time period are African-American. 
and the other 10% are either Native Americans or white men that are too poor to pay to get out. The average term that they would serve was 12 to 18 years, but the average life expectancy in convict leasing was 10 years. They literally worked them to death. Do you think if somebody is free from their slave master and they walk off a plantation and they're rolled up by the law and sold back to him that he's going to all of a sudden treat them better? No, the conditions got worse. They were treated worse. Before... Before, this was somebody that was kind of under his authority. Now, he's just viewing them as not only subhuman, but now it's criminal. So the conditions actually became worse in convict leasing than they were originally when slavery was was legalized. We move into the civil rights area in, 19, uh, in 1964. Segregation is determined to be unlawful. We desegregate our schools. We start to integrate them. We start to integrate our workplaces. But yet, four years after that, in 1968, 90% of Southern Baptist churches still don't permit black members. Four years after it's been abolished legally, the church itself, 9 out of 10 Southern Baptist churches still don't allow black membership. We decided and we've determined that we will still be divided on racial lines. So here's the statistics that we live in now. 91% of our pastors say that racial reconciliation is mandated by the gospel. However, 95% of whites attend predominantly white churches, 90% of African Americans attend predominantly black churches, and 70% of congregations say they like it just the way it is. Guys, we're, we're unrepentant. Christ calls for unity in the body. He calls for unity in the church. And seven out of ten of us go, no, I don't think so. I like it just the way it is. So much so that nine out of ten of us go to church with people that look just like us. I understand that in some communities, that's just the demographic. That's just the way it is. Like we're in Andrews, North Carolina, we're never going to have a 50-50 mix of whites and blacks in a congregation because that's just not the demographic of where we live. But it should look indigenous. It should look like the population around us. We don't have a large black population in Andrews, North Carolina, but we do have a decent-sized Native American population. So what are we doing to reach those people and graft them in? We do have somewhat of a Hispanic population here. What are we doing to graft them in? Or are we content to just go, yeah, no, I I like my white members at my predominantly white church, and I'm not really concerned about bridging any gaps. Or I, I like my predominantly black members at my predominantly black church, and I don't really care about grafting anyone else in. Guys, we, we've drawn the lines. The lines have been drawn for us in many cases, but we're okay with it. But I want us to, to learn today is that this isn't new. This isn't something unique to, to us here in the United States. This is something that the church has dealt with since its foundation. So let's turn to Ephesians 2. So in Ephesians 2, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he's, he's talking about, he, he starts off in, in chapter 1, and he tells them about their identity 
in Christ. And then, two, he talks about how they were all dead in their trespasses and sins and that they were, like, we were all following the princes of the power of this air, but by the grace of God, we've been saved, and he came for us while we were still sinful. And this by faith alone and not through works. And then, in starting in 2.11, he tells us, in light of God's grace and mercy on us, this is how we should respond. So starting in verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he highlights this division. So understand the animosity between Greek and Jew or, or Jew and Gentile, however you want to say it. Like this is real. Like this is real hatred. Like what, what the Lord had ordained, the Lord had set the Jewish people apart so they would kind of be a light in a dark place. And that their holiness, their being set apart would draw people to him. But what happened instead is the Jewish people used it as a platform to create the supremacy over everyone around them. They built this hierarchy, and instead of drawing people in, they just built up walls. And they built this system where they were socially constantly pushing people away. So much so, how many of you guys in here hate snakes? Okay, does it matter to you what kind of snake it is? No, you're just going to kill it, right? Okay, one of the common Jewish mottos was crush the head of the best snake, kill the best Gentile. Like, that's the way they, they view Gentiles. I don't care how good a snake is, I'm going to kill it. I don't care how good a Gentile is, he deserves to die. Jews were forbidden to help Gentile women in childbirth because they said if you helped a Gentile woman give birth, you were only making the problem worse by bringing more heathens into the world. That Gentiles were only created to fuel the fires of hell. Like, this is their sentiment towards the Gentile people, towards the Greeks. It's very similar to the common white sentiment towards African Americans in the 1700s. All the way up until the civil rights movement in the 60s. They, they are divided on racial and ethnic lines. So he goes on in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at this time separated from Christ. He's talking to the Gentiles here. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what he's telling the Gentiles, he's like, before this, before Christ, you were homeless, you were godless, and you were hopeless. You had no state. You had no nation. You didn't know the promises of God. And you were without hope in the world. But then he contrasts it in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This, this is abrasive. Paul's message here is abrasive to the Jewish people because they've set themselves in this ivory tower, right? They've been on this hierarchy for so long. And now he's saying, hey, you remember all those Gentiles that have been fo far off for so long? Well, Christ has brought them near. Well, the Jewish people have always been described as the ones who were near to God. So what he's just done is he's taken the Gentiles and he said, they're on equal footing. You guys are both near now for all those that are in Christ Jesus. So he's shaken up the social structure in their world. Basically what happened in the civil rights movement in the 60s is exactly what Paul's doing in the Jewish church at this time. He's saying, guess what? Everybody's equal. And they don't like it. Now in 14, he starts to describe how Christ accomplished this. He says, for he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So this dividing wall of hostility, this is, to the reader at this time, to put this in context, this is very obvious to them because around Herod's temple, there was a literal dividing wall. So there was this big six-foot dividing wall that separated the Jewish court from the Gentile court. So the Jewish court was right around the temple of God, and then you had this big wall that went around it, and then the Gentiles that wanted to pursue the, the Lord, that wanted to know the God of Israel, they could come into that Gentile court, but they could never approach the temple. And on this big wall, they had these big 12-inch marble like placards that went around the outside that said that any Gentile who crossed over that wall would be responsible for his ensuing death. Like It was a literal dividing wall of hostility. They said, you can look at the temple of our God, but you can, can't enter into his presence. You got to stay out there. So it's a dividing wall of hostility. Now, when Paul wrote this, that wall still stood. It didn't fall until Rome came and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he's not saying that he's literally, this wall is literally falling yet. What he's saying that because of the work of Christ, that wall doesn't hold any meaning anymore. It's obsolete. That now both Greek and Jew have access to God. Like he is a boss at dividing wall. The other part of that dividing wall is the Mosaic law. Like that was a dividing wall of hostility that kept the, the people, the Jewish and the Gentile people from accessing God. That was the veil that kept us from entering into his presence. But because of God's fully sufficient atonement on the cross, that as his work as our high priest, that that's all been covered and now we all have access to God. So that dividing wall has been broken down. So now we move in. So how does he accomplish it? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So it says he abolished the com law of commandments expressed in ordinances. All right, this is not a contradiction. Like the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says he came to fulfill the law. And now this text here says that he came to abolish the law. All right, there's no contradiction here. He says he's talking about the law expressed in ordinances. He's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about the sacrifices. He's talking about what you can eat and what you can't eat, these dietary regulations. He's talking about who you're allowed to be in a bathhouse with, who you're allowed to share a dinner table with. All these ceremonial segregations, he says, they've been abolished. Galatians 3.21, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It says the law isn't contrary to the life of Christ. The purpose of the law was to be as a guardian. It was to keep the people close to the heart of God until Christ came. And then we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who changes the desires of our heart where we actually want to pursue the things of his will. So the law was a guardian until that time came. So it's not contradictory. It just couldn't give life. Only Christ could do that. So now that this, this ceremonial law has been broken down, now there's nothing to keep Jew and Gentile apart. There's no regulation on circumcision or uncircumcision or you can eat this, you can't eat that. But we, we find later on that even in, even in Galatians, we hear the story of, of Peter who's eating with the Gentiles and then the Jews show up and he's like, uh, 
probably shouldn't hang out with those guys. And he goes and he slides over here, and then Paul rebukes him to his face and calls him out for it. Because there's still this underlying racism that's happening in the church. Guys, these dividing walls, we still have these dividing walls in our society. We don't call it racism, but we still have racist systems in this country. I remember whenever we moved, me and my wife moved to Texas, uh, after I got out of the military, we moved to Texas and we moved into this neighborhood. I could buy the same house on the other side of the street for $100,000 less. I'm talking identical homes. I could pay $100,000 less for that house if I was willing to live on the other side of the street. Well, why was that? School zoning. If I paid $100,000 more for the house on this side of the street, my kids were going to go to a school district with predominantly white families that were affluent and could afford it. But if I chose to live on the other side of the street in that same house and paid $100,000 less, then I was going to go to, my kids are going to go to the county school and they were going to go to school with poorer kids and Hispanic kids and black kids and kids that didn't possibly believe the same things they believed. Basically, they're going to go to school with a more diverse crowd than if they paid them more money. So we don't say, no, no, they can't come to our school. We go, no, you can absolutely come to our school. It's not our fault that mom and dad can't pay $100,000 more for a house to get you into that school. Like We still draw lines. This is how the ghettos in the north were built when slaves were leaving the plantations in the south and they fled north thinking that was going to be a safe haven. No, what, what happened is the white communities in the north said, oh, that was a southern problem. We don't want it up here. So they built these housing regulations in these ghettos to keep black people with black people and white people away from them. Even today in urbanization, as businesses move into the centers of downtowns and more rural, or uh, I'm sorry, more urban areas, and they become more, more wealthy right there in the heart of it, what happens is the poorer families, which are typically the black and Hispanic families, they get pushed a little bit further out from the inner city, and they start pushing the edges of the suburbs, and you have white flight, where most of your affluent white people, they get uncomfortable because now their communities are starting to look more diverse, so they just expand out builder, or I'm sorry, they expand out wider, and they charge more money for houses on the outside, and they just continually push themselves out. So we have these huge communities that just keep growing vastly. I mean, if I go into Houston, if I go in on the east side of Houston, I can drive 60 miles an hour down the interstate for an hour straight before I get to the west side. That's how much it's expanded. Like this process of urbanization where we just keep trying to segregate ourselves by bumping the boundaries further and further away. Right? The, the church is experiencing this same kind of ideology. This same kind of mentality where the people want to be, they want to be separate. The Judaizers do the same thing. They come in and they say, listen, absolutely, man, you guys got Jesus. That's awesome. We can all be, we can all be one, but you're going to need to get circumcised because we're circumcised. And you're going to need to worship like we worship and you're going to need to look like we look. Like, is that the picture that we paint of reconciliation in the church now? Do we try to force people around us to look like we look and talk like we talk and worship the same way we worship, and then and only then are they going to be integrated into our congregations? Only then are we going to allow them to be in our youth groups? Are we going to allow them to go the same places as us? Like, understand, like, we have to break these things down if we ever want to be effective for the gospel. 
So then he says that after he's abolished these commandments expressed in ordinances, he does so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So what he's done is he's abolished one thing so he can create something new. Colossians 3.11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Like, Christ has created this new race called Christianity. Not Scythian, not slave, not barbarian, not black, not white, not Hispanic. You're either Christian or you're not. And that's all he sees. Like, so many students come through here and we talk to them and we, they have a passion to go to the mission field. And they say, I want to go to Africa. I want to go to India. I want to go to Asia. I say, awesome, man. What, like, why do you guys want to do that? Like, heck, because we're all one. Like, we're all one in the body of Christ. I care about the oppression and the affliction and the persecution of the church in Asia and the, the persecution of the church in India and the persecution of the people in Africa. Like, I want to be a part of that. Okay, great. Understand this. There is no magical plane ride that you're going to get in and you're going to cross the ocean and you're going to go to a culture where you don't speak the language and you don't know the society and you're going to have an effect for the gospel when you live in a country where you speak the language and you know the culture and you're unwilling to cross racial and demographic lines to go in and have an impact. If you're not willing to cross the street and evangelize as somebody of a different color than you, then you're not going to go to a different nation and have an effect there in a place where you don't speak the language and you don't know the culture. You have to be bold for the gospel here before you can ever expect to be bold there. There's nothing magical about going there. Not only that, it would be extremely hypocritical if I say I care about the oppression and suffering of the people in Asia, in India, in Africa, but I don't care about the suffering of the people that live across the street from me. I can't love the nations and not love my neighbor. That's not the way it works. The problem is, is we believe this gospel where somehow we think we can be reconciled with God without being reconciled to our brother and sister of a different skin color. Like the gospel is clear that that's not true. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. If we go back to Scripture in, in verse 16, he says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's not just talking about killing the hostility between us. This isn't just as horizontal hostility. What he's talking about is that all of mankind, because of our fallen nature, we are rebellious towards God, and we have animosity towards him. And because of our sin, God has hostility welled up and wrath welled up that he's waiting to pour out on us, and he is justified in it. But what Christ has done is Christ climbed on the cross, and he took the wrath of the Father on our behalf, and he took our sin, and he allowed it to be consumed. And through him, he took that wrath, and instead he gave us justice. He justified us. And then if we put our faith in him, we have access to the Holy Spirit that will actually change our desires and change our heart, and it will empower us to do good works, and it will help us along and lead us towards him. Like what Christ has done, Christ has reconciled us with God. He broke down the hostility between us and God and made a way. 
So if he can do that between us and God, then there's no reason that there should be any hostility between us as brothers. Am I right? So if that's what reconciliation is, let me, let me say what reconciliation is not. Racial reconciliation is not just a multicolored youth group. It is not just a multicolored church. All right, you can have a very colorful church without being reconciled. Reconciliation is where you change your heart towards one another. It's not just about inviting people from different skin colors to come to your church. You have to stop looking at your brothers and sisters as social projects and start looking at them as fellow heirs and image bearers of God. You have to look at them as those who are brought near on equal footing. That's racial reconciliation. I think as white evangelicals, a lot of times we also think that racial reconciliation is a lot of black members coming into our white churches. Listen, for those of you who are seniors that are getting ready to go to college, if you move into a campus or near a campus and you start to look for churches, don't just go look at predominantly white churches. There's a good chance that you can find a faithful teacher that teaches the Bible expositionally, that cares about the Word of God, that is faithful to shepherd you, and you're going to sit under black leadership, and that's a good thing. Don't go searching out what church you're going to be a part of or what new community you're going to be a part of on racial lines without even thinking about it. Like, go out. Really seek to bridge these gaps. Ask yourself tough questions. I think uh, too many of us have bought into this idea that somehow this idea of racial reconciliation is not a part of the gospel. That it's just this liberal agenda that people are pushing that, oh, we should all be unified and we're, we're somehow bringing a racial issue into the church and it's not really a church issue. Guys, this is not a social or political issue that's being brought into the church. It has always been a church issue. Like, unity in the body of Christ has always been meant to be an example to the rest of the world. John 17, verse 20. Jesus is sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, he is grieved and burdened because he is getting ready to take the cup of wrath from the Father. He's getting ready to do it on our behalf. So he starts to pray for us. In his moment of greatest agony, he starts to pray for us. And what does he pray? Verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Don't tell me that racial reconciliation is not a part of the gospel. Jesus Christ is about to die and he prays for our unity. He prays that we would be unified. And why does he do it? He says that if we would be one, the world would know that the Father had sent him. Our unification should be a testament to the gospel. People should look at our churches and the diversity inside of it and the relationships we build and go, that doesn't make any sense. 
Because if we think about what's happening in the church at Ephesus, we have Greeks and Jews who have no reason to associate, who have always been segregated. So if you saw a Greek and a Jew on the streets associating with each other at this time period, Christ is the only reason. You know that they must be Christ followers or else they would not be mixed together. If the only reason you associate with somebody is because you're both brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, that's a powerful testament to the gospel. You don't have to have anything else in common. Last thing we get from Paul is in verses uh, 18 through 22, he says, For though through him, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. All right, so he, he builds this picture of what the church is supposed to look like. All right, Christ isn't going to fall on a physical temple anymore. Now we, the body of Christ, are his t- t- temple, and the Holy Spirit's going to dwell in us. So the foundation is set on the teachings of the apostles and prophets. It's Scripture. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And then we're supposed to be all be grafted together into this like beautiful mosaic of white and black and yellow and red bricks, building this beautiful temple of God in this universal church. But instead, what we look like is this unfinished work project where I've got my white bricks in this pile and my black bricks in this pile, and I don't want my bricks to touch. So the temple of God doesn't look like the temple of God. We're not living out the church described here. So how do we get there? Then we go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. Paul tells us, Paul's got every reason to brag, right? Paul's got the right bloodline. Paul's got the right education. Paul's got Roman citizenship. He's got everything he needs. But what does he say about unification in the gospel? Verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all, that I might win more to them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, talking about the Jews, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, talking about the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What is Paul saying? To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. My Jewishness, my teachings, I can take it on or put it on. I can take it off, whatever I need to do. My Roman citizenship, put it on, take it off, whatever I need to do. He, he did not hold on to his ethnic identity so strongly that he couldn't take it off if it meant sharing the gospel with somebody. Guys, we, we make it hard for people to believe that the gospel can penetrate every aspect of their life it can change every situation they're in if they follow christ if it can't desegregate our churches we can't say that we want to be unified for an hour on sunday mornings if we spend the other 167 hours out of the week doing something completely different 
what Paul says is that every other thing besides my identity in Christ should be secondary. So my, my prayer for you guys is that we as the body of Christ, from this moment forward, that we would not be first white or black or Hispanic or Republican or Democrat or even American. But all those things, we would say, I can put that on or I can take it off as needed, whatever I have to do to send the gospel. Because if my skin color keeps me from taking the gospel, it's become an idol in my life. If my political views keep me from sharing the gospel with somebody who thinks different than I do, it's an idol in my life. If my American citizenship keeps me from taking the gospels to the nations, it's become an idol. I have to be first found in Christ and everything else has to be secondary. And I can put it on and I can take it off, whatever I need to do. But we're called to unity in the body. We understand that the hope of Christ is that in his eyes, there are only two types of people. There are those that believe in him, that have the gospel, that need to be discipled. And there are those that haven't heard yet, and they need it. And it's our job as a body of Christ to take the gospel to them. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, we we thank you for your word. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you move in this. In these students' lives, uh, soften their hearts. Lord, I pray that you expose in ourselves any prejudice that we might have. I pray that you make it obvious to us where we've, where we've wandered, where we've strayed, where we haven't done your work, because it might be difficult, because it might be awkward. I pray that this generation, that these students, that we would all, we would all be become weak for those that are weak, that we would care about those that are oppressed, those that are bullied, those that are minorities, those that have been wronged. That we'd understand that in your eyes that there are only those that are in Christ and those out of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you're doing in these students' lives this week. And I pray that you continue to soften their hearts and continue to change them and mold them and that they would become more and more like you each day. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.